All right. This morning, we looked at what a deacon should be. We saw that character, not a set of life skills, is, is what's paramount. But character is not everything. Deacons are not installed to have quiet times. They are charged to perform tasks. So let's explore in greater detail what a deacon is meant to do. So intentionally, I've, I haven't given you kind of a, a, my, a working definition of deacon until now um, because I, I wanted you to kind of feel what uh, Paul is communicating in 1 Timothy 3. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. That's, that's what's upstream, as I said. But now that we're downstream from those qualifications, we can think more about the, what a deacon does. And so here, here's a working definition uh, for you. This is, this is just my summary. You could perhaps improve on it. But a, a deacon, or deacons are model servants. It doesn't mean they're good looking. It just means they are exemplary servants, model servants, um, who assist the elders by, and then I'm going to give you three things, and that's what we're going to look at together, Uh, okay? So deacons are model servants who assist the elders by, number one, spotting and meeting tangible needs, Spotting and meeting tangible needs. Two, protecting and promoting church unity. Protecting and promoting church unity. And three, serving and supporting the ministry of the word. Serving and supporting the ministry of the Word. So deacons are model servants who assist the elders by spotting and meeting tangible needs, protecting and promoting church unity, and serving and supporting the ministry of the Word. The the judge of whether this talk was successful will be that you leave thinking, man, that was a mouthful of a definition, but all those words were necessary. I hope you'll see that all those words are necessary. Um, All right, number one, deacons are servants in the church who assist the elders by spotting and meeting tangible needs. I want to look with you, um, and, and we're not going to walk through it verse by verse, but I want to, I want to look with you at, at Acts chapter 6, because we're going to draw some principles from it. So go ahead and turn there. This is the other major passage in the New Testament related to deacons, other than uh, 1 Timothy 3. Acts 6. Some people believe this is where the diaconate is established. I don't think I think that's we I don't think we can say that because the noun deacon never shows up. I don't think it's it's the kind of formal constitution of the diaconate, but I do think it is a passage that is setting in motion a pattern that will soon pe- become the position. It's a setting in motion a pattern that will soon become the position and we can derive 
a lot of helpful principles about the relationship between elders and deacons by observing the relationship between the twelve and the seven. The twelve are the apostles, and the seven are these forerunners to deacons. Now, we're not going to read anything in chapters 4 or 5 for, for the sake of time, but just know that things are going really well in the Jerusalem church. This is the first church in history, Acts 2, Peter preaches at Pentecost, 3,000 people bow their knee to King Jesus and get baptized and get added to the church. And so this is the first local, uh, local church here in Jerusalem, and, and there's persecu- you know, Satan is out to undermine. He hates what's going on. And so in chapter 4, he tries uh, persecution from without, and that doesn't work. And then chapter 5, he tries something else. He tries um, deception from within, Ananias and Sapphira. That doesn't work. So Satan's 0 for 2, okay? And then we come to chapter 6. So this is the third assault in his three-front attack on the church. And what he tries in chapter 6 is not persecution, that's chapter 4, not deception, it's chapter 5, but distraction. Distraction. Let's read together. Luke reports, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows, the Hellenist widows, were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the first function of a deacon, and, and what, I'm, what I'm arguing is that these three things that I've given you, spotting and meeting tangible needs, protecting and promoting church unity, serving and supporting the ministry of the Word, that these are three broad kind of umbrellas under which there's a lot of room for flexibility and application. But diaconal work is not less than these three things. So, number one, spotting and meeting tangible needs. Well, we see in this passage that's pretty obvious. The seven uh, are, are raised up to meet a tangible need, to solve a live problem. Now, what was the problem? As we're going to think about 
in, my, in, in the next point, it wasn't a mere food problem. Food was the occasion, but it wasn't the main problem. But just hold on to that for a moment, because first, first I, want you to, I want you to see, see the, the principle here. A church without biblically functioning deacons will be perpetually distracted from its central mission of making disciples. So there's a division of labor here that we see in Acts 6 between the apostles and the seven. And we should see in our churches between elders and deacons. Here, the problem is that inequitable food distribution had evoked a serious complaint and exposed a sensitive fault line in the church. Resolving the tension was important, even urgent. Notice that the apostles do not respond to the complaint by saying, you angsty Hellenists, why can't you just be happy? Why do you have to be, why do you have to complain? Don't you see we're a megachurch? Things are going well here. No, they don't question the validity of the complaint at all. In fact, they immediately spring to action. But notice what they don't do. They don't solve the problem themselves. See, some people could read this passage and think, oh, here's the lesson. Spiritual ministry is important. Physical ministry is not. Basically, you have a varsity and a JV team. Apostles and elders are on the varsity the seven and later deacons play JV. And what the apostles are doing here is saying, we're going to go devote ourselves to the important stuff, ministry of the word and prayer. You handle the food issue. That is a horrendous misreading of this because listen to me, if this wasn't an important problem, the apostles could have just imposed a a swift superficial solution and moved on just get it off my desk kind of thing. But instead, they enact a permanent structural solution and an ongoing, what will become an ongoing church office. They delegate this issue not because it's unimportant, but precisely because it's so important. And they want a team of others to be able to give their full energy and attention to it because it warrants that kind of energy and attention. For elders, and we'll just, I'll stop using the language of apostles and the seven and just try to bring it, bring it home to us. For elders and pastors today, tackling every short-term problem only paves the way for long-term disaster. Neglecting the ministry of teaching and prayer in order to solve, for for a, a team of pastors to neglect the ministry of the word and prayer in order to do something else in the life of the church that's good is like removing your heart to strengthen your arm. It's a form of slow motion suicide. So, Neglecting the ministry of teaching and prayer would eventually gut the very heart of the church. So the apostles lead the congregation to set apart seven men known for their godliness and wisdom, which we've already thought about, who would coordinate a solution. And throughout the centuries, churches have looked at this chapter and have derived the principle that deacons are mercy ministers. Deacons should 
be caring for the, the sick and the poor and the afflicted. And that's definitely true. Again, diaconal ministry is not less than mercy ministry. But it's not limited to mercy ministry because the principle is actually larger. Do you, I mean, the, 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 the problem here in the Jerusalem church happened to be something tangible and, and, and even dealing with, with uh, suffering people in the church. But the apostles could have had other things that were distracting them and threatening to derail their focus. Anything in a church's life that threatens to distract and derail elders from their primary responsibilities is biblically legitimate as a potential diaconal role. Notice also, this is, this is interesting, that in Acts 6, the apostles don't raise up the seven themselves and tell them what to do. This is one reason why I'm a congregationalist. I, I, I believe that under King Jesus, final authority for making decisions in the church on big matters like membership, who comes into your church, discipline, who you put out of your church, leadership, doctrine, that final authority resides not with the elders or the pastors, but with the congregation as a whole. Notice here in Acts 6, the apostles, you want to talk about authority? The apostles had authority, and yet they do not actually choose the seven. They summon the full number of the disciples, which by this time would have been about 8,000 people. So what you have here is not just history's first megachurch. You also have something approximating history's first members meeting, okay? Probably in Solomon's colonnade, somewhere out, out, outside in Jerusalem, you have a throng of 8,000 plus people there assembled because the apostle said, gather the full number, not of the home group leaders, but of the disciples, all the Christians, okay? So they're all there. And then the apostles say, choose from among yourselves seven. Listen, he had me here talking about deacons, but I'm going to start going off on uh, why your church should be elder-led congregational. Congregational, okay? Because he says, choose from among yourselves seven men. And then he says, who, who will appoint to the duty. You choose them, we'll appoint them. And then there's no verse that says, and then we'll tell them what to do which implies that deacons should not have to be micromanaged and babysat. Don't install people into the office of deacon who are not a safe pair of hands. Someone can be godly and can look a lot like 1 Timothy 3, but fail to reply to emails and regularly flake out on things. They are not yet mature enough to be a deacon. A deacon should be someone that you, that actually relieves headaches, not compounds them. Someone that, the whole point of a deacon is so that you can kind of offload part of your brain to them. They can take something and run with it so that you can be focused. You're not having to constantly think, did he show up? Did, did she follow through with that? No, a deacon should be someone who is responsible and responsive. And that's why 
I told you, all my words and my definition matter. Why did I have to give two verbs for each one? Well, it's because a deacon is not just someone who meets tangible needs, but someone who also spots them. See, there's a difference because a good deacon, a good deacon reacts well to present problems, but the best deacons also anticipate future problems. Biblical deacons then are are like a congregation's offensive linemen, okay, whose job it is to protect the quarterback. They rarely get attention, much less credit, but their labors are utterly indispensable for both guarding and advancing the ministry of the Word. And without them, without this offensive line in the church, what's going to happen to the pastors? They'll suffer incessant distraction, and they will get sacked by an onrush of practical demands. So, pastors, when eyeing future deacons, look for, the, look for godly saints who see and meet needs discreetly. That is, they don't want or need credit at their own expense. They sacrifice, and without being asked. They take initiative to solve problems. So warning signs, then, in a, in a deacon, deacon candidate, will include not merely a tendency to be quarrelsome, which we'll think about in a minute, but also just a tendency to be disorganized or unreliable, which is what I was saying earlier. So, so here, here's it, what... If there was a flow chart on there, here's what it would look like. A healthy deacon, there's a pattern in their life. They see a problem. They want to safeguard unity, which is what we'll think about in a minute. They think creatively, and they solve the problem. See a problem, want to guard unity, and so they think creatively, and finally they solve the problem. Show me a church with distracted pastors and a derailed mission— Show me a church with distracted pastors and a derailed mission, and I will show you a church without effective deacons. Number two, deacons don't only spot and meet tangible needs. And by the way, I chose that word tangible purposely. I don't like the word physical quite as much because when you hear physical needs, you just think, oh, it's the opposite of spiritual. Well, no, diaconal ministry is spiritual ministry focused on tangible needs. I mean, elders need deacons to be spiritually aware, just as deacons need elders sometimes to be practically aware. If an elder is over at a widow's house to pray with her and read the Bible with her, but but doesn't offer to lift the heavy table, he's failed in his job as an elder. If a deacon is over at a widow's house to help move some heavy furniture, but he doesn't ask her how her soul is and if he could pray for her, he's failed in his job as a deacon. So yes, there's division of labor, but there is overlap. Diaconal ministry is spiritual ministry with a tangible focus. Sorry, I promise number two. Let's get to it. Protect and promote church unity. Protect and promote church unity. Where am I getting this? Well, look back at Acts 6. 
Remember I told you that it's not, it wasn't a mere culinary squabble. This wasn't just a food problem. Food was the presenting issue, but the deeper issue, the reason it was, it was a, a serious threat level to the church is because this food crisis was threatening to undermine the very unity for which Christ bled and died. Nothing gets more important than threats to church unity. That's why the apostles sprang into action. That's why the apostles told the congregation, choose from among yourselves seven to solve this crisis, because there were there was division that was starting to run along very natural fault lines in the church and creating something that, if it was not addressed, would fracture the unity of the gospel in that place. So look what happens. Look, look again here with me. A complaint arose, verse 1, by the Hellenists, and I told you earlier, those are Grecian Jews, okay? Jews who are not native to Palestinian soil. They, they, are, they didn't grow up speaking Hebrew. They didn't grow up in Jerusalem schools. They grew up in the, in, in the Roman Empire somewhere, speaking Aramaic, the language of pagans. Uh, or I'm sorry, speaking Greek, the language of pagans, not speaking Aramaic, the, the language of Jesus, the, the language of, of those there in, um, in Israel. So you have, essentially, here in this one church, you have Jewish converts to Christianity, but they're very different cultural and even ethnic backgrounds, okay? So you have the Hellenists who have become Jews uh, and then have even become Christians, but culturally, ethnically, linguistically, they're Greeks. And then you have the Hebrews, right? They're Jews who have become Christians through Peter's preaching, but culturally, ethnically, linguistically, they aren't foreigners. They are native. They, and, and they're looking at these Johnny-come-lately, you know, Hellenists, uh, and they're like, and they're like you, you guys, your, your, your accent is wrong, uh, your culture is wrong, all this stuff. And you know what the apostles never do? Paul, others, they, they, they never say, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a church for Gentile Christians, because we know that'll work, and Jewish Christians, because we know that'll work. That's the way that we are going to prevail against the forces of darkness. No. The whole, much of the New Testament is given to encouraging, equipping, exhorting congregations to live together in an understanding way, even though their backgrounds and cultures are so different. So back to, I'm still in verse 1, okay? A complaint by the Hellenists, it's the, the, the Grecian Jews, arose against the Hebrews, the Palestinian Jews, because their widows were being overlooked and neglected in the daily distribution. And then the other stuff happens. And then verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose, so this is who the congregation chooses. Okay, guys, listen, we're in Jerusalem right now. It's the Jerusalem church. The, the, the Hebrews have home court advantage, not the Hellenists. 
Remember, it's the Hellenists who are raising this complaint. Our widows are being overlooked. So the whole congregation, majority Hebrew congregation comes together, and who do they choose to install into this position of influence to solve the problem? Well, these seven names which I read in in verses 5, well, verse 5. Do you know what the hidden punchline of this whole story is? All seven names are Greek names. You can imagine the headline the next day, Majority Hebrew Congregation appoints Hellenist leaders. And it wasn't even the Hebrews whose widows were having an issue. So, what, you see what the Hebrews have done? They have so loved their neighbor as their self, so died to their own cultural preferences that the Hebrews, as a church, have actually installed seven men, not just, it's not that they've done, okay, we're going to have seven Greek men so that they can take care of the Greek widows. Isn't that sweet? No, these men are taking care of all the widows in the church. The Hebrews are so tasking and empowering these minority members in the church that they are actually, the Hebrews are entrusting their own widows to the direction and the care of these minority members. There's so many lessons for us here. And listen, this is not about meeting some, don't import your little 2021 grid on this. This is not about meeting an arbitrary quota or being politically correct. This is about Romans 12, 10, outdo one another in showing honor. The Bible has one competition for you to engage in, and it's that. Outdo one another. You want to be better than someone else in the church? The Bible says, go right ahead. Here's your competition. Outdo them in showing honor. So, the diaconate is designed to safeguard the harmony of the church. Just as the seven were tasked to salvage the unity of the Jerusalem church, which was fracturing along these very natural fault lines, cultural, ethnic, linguistic fault lines, so deacons today are meant to play a pivotal role as shock absorbers in congregational life. Shock absorbers. That means that the deacons in your church should be those who muffle shockwaves, not make them reverberate further. How ironic is it that so often our horror stories are of deacons doing, compounding the very headaches that they were meant to relieve? A deacon should be a person where conflict and gossip go to die. Like, if you're a deacon... You, you, should, you should be like a cul-de-sac, not a conduit. Like, if, if gossip and, and conflict are coming your way, all of a sudden they see, ah, dead end, and they realize, I got to go somewhere else because this is going to die with that brother or sister. So a contentious Christian will make a poor deacon. 
A deacon, a, a mature deacon, a qualified deacon is someone who is marked by a palpable humility, a spirit of gentleness, a willingness to be flexible, the ability to stand on conviction. We talked about that earlier, holding the faith with a clear conscience. You stand on conviction without being combative. So one way to discern if a deacon candidate is kind of wired for the role is simply to to look at verses like Jesus, you know, blessed are the peacemakers. Just hold a deacon's life up to the mirror of that verse. Is this a peacemaker? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. 1 Corinthians 1, 10 to 11, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Listen, deacons should be especially slow. Like, What I just read to you is not addressed to deacons. It's addressed to all Christians. But remember I said a a deacon is an exemplary Christian, a model servant. So as examples to the flock, deacons should be especially slow, especially so slow to perpetuate any kind of partisan spirit. Satan loves to watch factionalism expand its tentacles and slowly suffocate a church. Deacon? Are you alert to his schemes? We see the same kind of language, Philippians 4.2. Paul says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Deacons are, some, are people who have this kind of let's agree impulse. And that's not a mere kind of kumbaya, we don't ever talk about hard things. It's not about uniformity. Uniformity is the mark of a cult. This is about unity, the mark of a church. And it's, it's, it's not about sameness, everyone being just a bunch of clones, but it is about people putting aside their differences, dying to their preferences, inconveniencing themselves for the good of others. Deacons must be on the front lines of facilitating this kind of hard-won agreement in the Lord. So a deacon is someone, you could say, with fine-tuned conflict radar. But there are two kinds of people with fine-tuned conflict radar. Some people just love hitting the drama button. Some people just love to know the scuttlebutt. That's not what I'm talking about. A deacon has fine-tuned conflict radar because they rise to respond in creatively constructive ways to promote the good of the whole. They see conflict from a distance and they plot for ways to squelch it and to thwart the schemes of the evil one before it can erupt in the life of the church. That's what the seven are doing here in Acts chapter six, and that's what the deacons should do in your church today. This is one of many reasons why Satan hates deacons. Because deacons are the people, as he's trying to get a foothold in the door of the church, they're just sort of kicking his foot out. Stay out of here. That is the role of a biblical deacon. So spotting and meeting tangible needs and protecting and promoting church unity. Again, you thought I just needed one verb. No, I need both. 
because there's a slight difference between protecting something and promoting something. Deacons should protect it. They guard the unity of the church, but they also promote it. They, they, are the, they excel in encouragement. They're more fluent in the language of encouragement than in the language of criticism. We have enough people in our church, churches cr- fluent in the language of criticism. It should not be your deacons. So, I know I've said a lot on this point. I guess I'll just conclude by saying a deacon should be someone who's easy to please and hard to offend. You do not want a deacon who is hard to please and easy to offend. A deacon should be someone who's easy to please and difficult to offend. Consider Mark Dever's insight here. Quote, you don't want people serving as deacons who are unhappy with your church. Can I get an amen? The deacons should never be the ones who complain the loudest or jar the church with their actions or attitudes. Quite the opposite. You don't want to nominate deacons who don't recognize the importance of the ministry of preaching and teaching, but rather people who are anxious to protect it. More broadly, you want the most supportive people in the church to serve as the deacons. So when you're considering who might serve as a deacon... Look for people with gifts of encouragement. Again, it's not the guy with an impressive tool collection or the guy with with an impressive financial portfolio or um, a lot of business experience or who's been in the church for 40 years. Deacons are not glorified janitors. They're not glorified businessmen. They are a cavalry of servants deputized to serve the church on the king's behalf, and a qualified deacon will increasingly resemble the kind of unity-forging love, unity-forging love that the Bible so clearly commands. Number three, deacons are model servants who assist the elders by spotting and meeting tangible needs, Protecting, protecting and promoting church unity and serving and supporting the ministry of the word. There is a sense in which godly deacons in a healthy church will increasingly say, we serve at the pleasure of the elders. Now, you may be thinking, wait, isn't it at the pleasure of King Jesus? Absolutely. Absolutely. But listen, staff in, the, staff in the White House serve at the pleasure of the president, even though they're ultimately accountable to the American people. A church's elders are finally accountable to the church's members. Even more fundamentally, of course, the elders serve at the pleasure of King Jesus. Nevertheless, Jesus has embedded different layers of life-giving authority into his church. Deacons serve at the elders' pleasure not because elders are ultimate, but because Jesus is. And this is how, in his immeasurable wisdom, he has designed his church to function. What I am not saying is that deacons should be yes-men, and that deacons just uh, are just puppets who do whatever the elders say, especially if an elder or pastor ever asks you to sin, it would be sinful to obey them. 
a pastor without a Bible is a pastor without authority. But notice the, what I'm saying here also sounds foreign to us because it's so rare in so many churches. Let me briefly hit pause, though, and just acknowledge something. I'm guessing not all of your churches have elders. So maybe you get confused or you tune me out when, I, when I'm talking about all of this stuff about elders. Let, let me just speak to you for a second. If you don't have elders, um, I, I, of course, I would encourage you to revisit what the Bible says about that. Um, I think that a plurality of elders, shepherds, pastors is the overwhelming dominant pattern of the New Testament. Um, elders are not a Presbyterian thing. Elders are a biblical thing. Uh, but that's not the workshop I've been, I've been asked to lead, okay? There's an excellent book in the same series called, you ready for this scintillating title? Elders uh, by, by Jeremy Rennie. And I would commend that book to you. But listen, if you're in a church where you don't have elders, for our purposes today, that's okay. Every time you hear me say elders, just substitute the words staff pastors, okay? So deacons are assistants to the elders. In your church for now, that looks like they are, they are assistants to the staff pastors. I had more I was going to say on that, but I'm just going just gonna to leave it. All right, here we go. Uh, Alexander Strauch uh, is actually most well-known as an author for his work on eldership. He has a, a book called Biblical Eldership, but he's also written some stuff on deacons. And his recent book, uh, well, actually, I'll give you a little more backstory. He wrote a book on deacons 20 years ago called Ministers of Mercy, in which he, um, he advanced that thesis that a deacon is a minister of mercy, focusing on... Um, caring for the poor and the afflicted. A few years ago, he wrote a follow-up book called Paul's Vision for the Deacons, which is one of the most helpful books on the subject that I've encountered. In Paul's Vision for the Deacons, he basically overturns his previous thesis. And he argues, and I agree with him, that while deacons, as I've said a few times, are not less than mercy ministers, they should not be limited to mercy ministers. That actually the, 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 the word in Greek from which we get deacon has a broader range of meaning that can encompass any kind of delegated task at the behest of a superior. And so uh, what, what I want to sketch out for you here, I'm not going to get into all the weeds. If you want to get into the weeds, you can read his book or you can see kind of my summary of it in chapter 4, but I just, I just want to point out one thing that is just kind of straight out of um, the biblical text, and that is that notice that in 1 Timothy 3, 8 to 12, we don't have to, you don't have to turn back there, notice the logical order, and I would even argue the inseparable connection between the two offices. Or rather, I should say that the reverse. Notice the inseparable connection, and I would even argue the logical order. Elders first, deacons second. 
The structure of the passage suggests that deacons are both paired with and subordinate to the elders they support. It's almost like Paul doesn't want us to catch our breath, lest we miss that inseparable connection and logical order. And that's not the only place it shows up. Remember I told you that deacons are hardly everywhere mentioned in the Bible? I'll just tell you right now where they are, okay? Acts 6, the noun doesn't even show up. So if we're focused on on New Testament passages where the noun deacon shows up, referring to a formal office in the church. The noun, the, the diakonos, shows up 29 times. The overwhelming majority of the time, it gets rightly translated as servant or minister, referring to every kind of Christian. But there are a few times where, based on context, it's clearly referring to what we're here to talk about today, the, the local church office. It only shows up in three passages. Or, if you don't believe women uh, are, should be deacons, you believe it only shows up in two, because one of them is debatable. One of them is Romans 16.1, where Paul refers to Phoebe as a diakonos, a deacon of the church at Sancria. But even that one's debatable. So let's just put it aside for a second. Now we're down to two. The first one we looked at this morning, the qualifications for deacons, there's only one more. Philippians 1.1, Philippians 1.1, where Paul writes, uh, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Two offices in the church, overseers slash pastors slash elders and deacons. The purpose of deacons is inseparably tied to the priority of elders. And so let's get practical for a second. This is why, friends, it is misguided when deacons function as a separate power block or a second house of the legislature through which bills need to be passed in the church. It is not the job of deacons to be mere yes-men but nor is it their job to function as a counterweight to the pastors and to check and balance their every decision, especially with a posture of suspicion and mistrust. I have a friend, he became a pastor a few years ago in a church, and I asked him how elders and deacons function there, and he said, oh, it's pretty simple. It's a stay-in-your-lane kind of thing. Elders are like, we oversee everything here that's spiritual, you over, and, and the deacons are like, we oversee everything here that's physical and, and, and get off my lawn kind of thing, right? Well, that falls so far short of the Bible's high vision for the office. The elders are the, the, the spiritual leaders and shepherds of the church. It is the job of deacons to, to um, implement the vision of the elders, not the other way around. Here's how Mark Dever, Mark Dever puts it in another helpful illustration. If the elders say, let's drive to Pittsburgh, it's not up to the deacons to come back and say, no, let's drive to Philadelphia instead. Now they can legitimately come back 
And I would argue not just legitimately, but helpfully come back and say, our engine won't get us to Pittsburgh. We'd encourage you to reconsider. That's helpful. But in general, their job is to support the destination set by the elders. One way to think about it is that the elders have the steering wheel, the congregation has the emergency brake. Okay? So in a healthy car, you're not pulling the emergency brake very often. What are the deacons doing? They're making sure the car is running well so that you don't enter into that kind of crisis situation. And one of the ways they're helping to make sure the car is running well is that there's trust intact between the elders and the congregation because the deacons are the ones facilitating and fostering that kind of unity. So this is not to say that the elders of a church are infallible. Nonetheless, insofar as we are looking to the Bible as our guide for church governance, deacons, hear me now, I know it's, we're in that afternoon lull, deacons are never in the Bible presented as chaperones of the elders who impose a potential check on their every decision. As I said, in a healthy church, godly deacons execute the vision and oversight of the elders, not the other way around. And I would even go farther and say, if you're a deacon, that's good news for you. That's not just, oh, putting you in your place and, you know, taking away from what's yours. No, actually, to the degree you understand what the Bible, how, what the Bible does and doesn't mean by deacon, you are going to thrive and flourish because God is good and wise and doesn't make mistakes, and He knows what He has in mind when it comes to deacons and elders, and the more you can live underneath His wisdom and live into what He has held out in Scripture for the office of deacon, the more you're going to flourish and the more your congregation is going to thrive as a result. How are we doing on time, James? Okay. I already talked about the key difference between the two in, in the Q&A. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just briefly repeat it. One of the qualifications to be an elder is that you have to be able to teach. It doesn't mean able to preach, but it does mean able to teach. It means when you open your Bible and start explaining it and applying it, people leave more helped than confused. <laughs> but guess what? you can be a wonderful deacon and not be that good at articulating Scripture in that way. Now, you have to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. You've got to know doctrine, but a deacon, as a deacon, you are not in that shepherding, teaching, feeding role of the church, in the church, in the, in the same way. I already mentioned that de- uh, deacons are nowhere described in the New Testament as overseers or rulers, Um, obviously that there will be some natural measure of influence and even leadership that accrues to them, but they are not um, elders in that sense. H.B. Charles puts it this way. I mean, some people you'll hear say this. They'll say, well, elders lead, deacons serve. I think that's a little um, oversimplified because the reality is elders serve and deacons do lead. It's not the 1 Timothy 2.12 authority, But of course, any time you're going to be kind of a lead volunteer in the church, organizing service, coordinating uh, care, mobilizing others, you're going to have some measure of practical uh, leadership in the church. I like the way uh, Pastor H.B. Charles puts it. He says, 
elders serve by leading, deacons lead by serving. Okay, elders serve by leading, deacons lead by serving. This is not to say, again, I, I'm, this, is, this is the part where it's like, I, it's just, uh, I, I'm, I'm skipping stuff as I go because I hit it during the Q&A. But again, I want to commend to you this framework from, from Jamie Dunlop, um, pastor of, what is his title? They don't do titles like that. He's kind of the administrative operations executive pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., um, I like his framework that elders lead ministry, deacons facilitate ministry, the congregation does ministry. The way we put it in our church, we're elder-led, deacon-served, congregation-ruled. So those are the three, the three things, right? Meeting tangible needs, spotting and meeting tangible needs, protecting and promoting church unity, and serving and supporting the ministry of the Word, which is, these are principles uh, much of this is derived straight from Acts chapter 6. Now, you thought you were going to be able to hit the road and you'd be done. You'd be getting a little Starbucks in a few minutes on your way out of town, but I got a little more for you, okay? So hang tight. Here we go. Those are the responsibilities of a deacon, but I also want to touch on what was raised in the Q&A, which is legitimate, healthy models for doing deacons, okay? So I'll just give you three of them. I already mentioned them to you, but, but I'll just give a few comments on each one. First, mercy ministers. Mercy ministers. This has the most historical pedigree, deacons focusing on um, outreach to the poor and to the needy, especially within the congregation. Uh, I love the way that one author, uh, Cornelis Van Dam, you don't need to remember his name or his book, but he has, he has a book on, on deacons, and he, he says that in caring for the needs of the poor, deacons remove barriers to congregational joy. And he shows that that's really, in a lot of ways, what deacons are doing is that, um, or I'll give you a practical example. Take the issue of widows, because that's what, what's going on in, in Acts chapter 6, right? The widows were being overlooked. Why was that such a big deal in the first century? Well, if you're a Jewish widow, you're vulnerable, but you're taken care of because of the synagogue. The synagogue had a system for taking care of its own widows. But what happens when you when you hear a sermon by this guy and 3,000 people, including you, get converted and you become a Christian, the synagogue kicks you out. So widow, Christian widows uh, in, in Jerusalem were even more vulnerable because they didn't have the support of the synagogue. They needed the church in order to survive. And this author goes on to explain goes on to explain that um, the, the, the role of deacons is making sure that the poor and needy are helped and that no one lives uncomforted, uncared for in the communion of saints. In the communion of saints. Uh, last thing I'll mention on this, on this thing about mercy ministry is just notice that, that uh, diaconal ministry has always served word ministry. And the two go together. It's not that, you know, one's important and the other's not. 
but it's almost like if the elders are preparing the meal, the deacons are setting the table. If, if the elders are, are saying, we're going, we're going um, in this direction, the deacons are, are paving the road and making sure that it's drivable. So that's the first. And in Presbyterian and Reformed circles, that's how deacons today are, are um, most commonly understood and implemented as mercy ministers. But the, uh, another one would be uh, that I think is valid is, is what I'm calling a team of leading servants. And there I am referring to the deacon board, a deliberative body that meets. And this is, this is uh, most common in Baptist life, for instance, where there's a chairman of the deacons and a vice chair, and, you know, it, it's a whole, it's, a, it's, it's one body that meets together. And I think that this can be good. It can provide a healthy measure of synergy and camaraderie and accountability. Um, uh, and I, I think it can be done well. For example, I, a friend of mine, Brian Croft, he, he leads a ministry called Practical Shepherding. He practiced this kind of a model when he was a pastor. The deacons in his church would meet together while the elders met, simultaneously but separately. And then afterward, he would have a follow-up meeting with the chairman of the deacons, and they would both swap relevant information. What do the elders need to be aware of? What do the deacons need to be aware of? And vice versa. And this, is, this gets back to, back to what I was saying earlier about the elder and the deacon at the widow's house, right? It's not like your job is to just care for her physical needs and your job to care for her spiritual needs. No, there, there's overlap between the offices. Elders despite their spiritual focus, should remain practically aware, like I said earlier, and deacons, despite their practical focus, should remain spiritually aware. Here's my word for you personally. If you're serving as a deacon in a church where, where you have a body of deacons, a deacon board, I hope it's clear that you've been called to far more than a monthly meeting. Deaconing is not an extracurricular for your spiritual resume. It is the means by which your Savior has, has chosen to use you in this season of your life to serve the church He bought with His own blood. And so I just encourage you, give yourself afresh to the work. The third one, which I think is underrated, um, and I would commend to you if you have any ability to implement it in your church, is what I call the role-specific or the task-specific ministry mobilizer. Role-specific ministry mobilizers. Um, Here's the thing about that. Rather than meeting as a deliberative body, deacons are elected to, installed into specific diaconates, diaconal positions, where they coordinate volunteer teams as needs arise. And, and these positions oversee one area of the life of the church. So a deacon of hospitality, a deacon of, of sound, uh, a deacon of, uh, actually I'll use that example in a second, um, a deacon of the ordinances, you know, preparing the water for baptism and um, the elements for the Lord's Supper, deacon of nursery, deacon of uh, community outreach, deacon of college outreach, deacon of music, whatever, whatever is helpful you can have as a deacon position. And these positions won't be here necessarily until Jesus returns. They can be created and dissolved at will based on what's needed in the congregation at the time. So I'll give you an example from my church in, in Louisville. 
We, within the span of one or two months, created a new one and dissolved one we no longer needed. So we created a diaconate of foster care and adoption because there, at that time, were a lot of families fostering and um, in the adoption process in our church, and it was just starting to drain the energy and attention of the staff pastors. So that's the perfect thing for a deacon position. It might sound weird to you that that's a deacon position, but if we're not going to make it a deacon position, then it's going to naturally fall on the desk of those who are supposed to give their best energy and attention to the ministry of the Word. So we created that in the life of the church, but we also dissolved our deacon of missionary care. Now, lest you think we don't care about the nations, I'll just say that we we came to realize that actually that was a, a, a job, staying in touch with our missionaries having Skype calls with them, figuring out what they needed, sending gift baskets uh, or or gift uh, care packages, all the rest, that that was something that actually one of the staff pastors could more easily just do himself rather than having to kind of be the middleman and constantly in touch with this. So the point is, these are fluid at any given time in a church. You could have two, you could have eight, you could have 14, but they're task-specific diaconates. And uh, now, here's the, the example I wanted to give. Parking deacon, all right? Now, we, we have a, a deacon of parking in our church, and this is a good test case because you might be sitting there rolling your eyes thinking, a deacon of parking? Who is this kid? Like, if, you know, no, no wonder they asked him to write the book on deacons. He can make a deacon position out of anything, uh, right? If, if we're going to have a deacon of parking, what can't be a deacon position? Well, you know, I I would say, think more carefully about it. A deacon of parking is utterly vital to what's most central in a church, because if the members can't easily park, then they can't easily gather, and if you can't easily gather, then you literally are not a church. And conflict can sometimes erupt in the parking lot, when, you know, and so deacons can be a shock absorber. So that's a great example of something. It doesn't have to be a deacon position, but it could be a deacon position in the life of your church. I'm going to, this guy that I, I mentioned earlier, Jamie Dunlop, and, and don't worry, I'm, I'm rounding the curve um, to conclude soon. But I'm going to quote him at length here because I think that what, what he says here is very relevant to probably a lot of your churches that do have a deacon board. And again, I'm not saying it's wrong to have a deacon board. It's not. The Bible is silent on that. And where the Bible is silent, we should shut up. But I want to commend to your consideration transitioning to a task-specific diaconal model. And Jamie Dunlop gives a few reasons why that may be a wise move. So here's the dilemma he raises, and then I'll I'll read his answer. He he raises the dilemma, how do we encourage deacons to be entrepreneurial unity builders who don't encroach on the elders' leadership of the church, even if they're well-intentioned, who don't kind of encroach on the elders' leadership of the church and so cause disunity? He talks about three things, and I'm quoting here. Number one, deacon meetings deacon meetings. Quote, if the goal of deacons is to support the directional decisions made by the elders, 
then deacons do not need to meet as a deliberative body. Again, you can, but you don't need to meet as a deliberative body, especially if your deacons each facilitate ministry in one specific area, such as child care or hospitality. Certainly, there is no model of deacons sharing power with elders, as do the House and Senate in U.S. legislature. Second, committees. Committees. Which is a word you will not find in your New Testament. Uh, I'm not trying to throw shade, but if you have a church and you have committees but not elders, I just want to be like, I just am on a Bible reading plan. I'm not that smart, but I'm seeing a lot of elders and no committees. Committees. When standing diaconal committees begin to feel that they own specific ministry areas of the church, it becomes difficult for them to avoid making direction-setting decisions that should be left to the elders. Do you see that? He ain't judging anyone's motives. He's saying they're actually just trying to do their best. But you're setting them up for failure. You're setting them up to encroach on the elders' territory by kind of giving them areas of the church that they own and therefore they're going to start when they're all in the room together and the synergy and the camaraderie is going, they're going to start to just naturally want to do good for the church and so they're going to start to make kind of direction-setting decisions. Things that are on the level of principle, on the level of vision, which is not quite the job description of deacon. So Dunlop says, quote, after all, even things as worldly as, as the building or the budget have highly spiritual dimensions in their administration. As such, churches should consider making any committees task-focused and time-limited, chartered to complete a task assigned by the elders. And then the, uh, the last thing Dunlop talks about is communication. Quote, most diaconal ministries will at least occasionally run up against direction-level decisions that need to go to the elders. At our church, we have found it useful to assign each deacon to an elder who regularly communicates what the elders are deciding in their meetings. The elders can then take direction-level issues in the deacon's work back to the larger body of elders as needed. Whatever practical model your church favors, this is me talking the most important thing is that the role of deacons is properly understood. So, it's, it, guys, threading the needle on deacons is hard, okay? Because you, you neither want to, um, you, 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 I think deacon, churches get deacons wrong in two ways, basically. I mean, there are a lot of ways they get deacons wrong, but they kind of can all be put into two buckets, right? You either unduly elevate the role of deacon to that of a, uh, functional elder, or you wrongly reduce the role of deacon to that of a glorified janitor or building and grounds crew. The Bible actually has a much higher vision than either of those mistakes for the office. Because as I said earlier, if we miss out on what the Bible says about deacons and we make them into elders, we're actually missing out on what the Bible says about both. Last note I want to sound, it is crucial to emphasize that 
the most effective deacons, and I've alluded to this already, but I just, I just want to kind of end on this note. The most effective deacons don't do everything themselves. I used the word mobilizer for a reason. When you're looking for a deacon, not only are you looking for the character, not only are you looking for someone who's a safe pair of hands and knows how to reply to an email, someone you don't have to babysit, but you also are looking for someone, to use the image from earlier, who's not a cul-de-sac of service. I mean, in other words, you don't just want to find a workhorse who will do everything themselves. Because what happens if that person, God forbid, gets hit by a bus? No, you want to find a person who's actually going to generate and foster a culture of service and is going to recruit and mobilize others to serve in your church. So, Look for someone who has that kind of personality, that they have vision, they have the ability to um, coordinate and organize service and help perpetuate it more than they could do just themselves. Look for those who will faithfully organize service, not simply do it all themselves. Okay, in conclusion, turn back to Acts 6. Turn back to Acts 6. All right, I love this. Verse 1. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. Remember I told you things were going really well? This, this church was exploding in growth and fruit and you know, Acts 2 and Acts 4 talks about how everyone was in each other's homes and, and sharing their possessions. And I mean, this, this is like the, the pristine picture of the early church, right? And so many, so, so much literature out there today is, is, is Christian literature is about how do we get back to the early church? Well, we're still in the early church here. And verse 1, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, so this church is growing, a complaint arose. Now that feels more realistic, right? For in churches, we know what that's like. A complaint arose, to put it mildly. And then the things, if there were, if there were a musical score to the book of Acts, the, there would be a real change in the middle of verse 1. The disciples were increasing in number, soaring epic music, and then a complaint arose. There would be an ominous drumbeat that set in. And then in verses 2 to 6, we have that problem being solved, that crisis being averted, and it has everything to do with deacons. And look how Luke ends. Verse 7, and the Word of God continued to increase. Verse 7 and verse 1 frame the passage. It's the, that's the point of a frame in your house. You, you, don't, you put the frame around the picture, not so that people in your house, not so that guests would show up and stare at the frame and say, I love this frame. You put the frame on so that they would focus on what's in the middle. Biblical authors do the same thing. Do not miss the structure. Luke is saying, the church was growing. 
ah, crisis, threat to the unity of the church. What are we going to do? We're going to raise up seven. The church started growing again. The church started growing again. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Deacon, never, ever underestimate the power you have by the, pow- by, by the Holy Spirit to be a change agent in your church. For better or worse, deacons are difference makers. Just like I said earlier, you're going to be a theologian. The question is whether or not you're a good one. You are going to be a difference maker in your church. The question is, will you be a positive or a negative difference maker? And I just encourage you all, sit with 1 Timothy 3 as you think about your own life and conduct and sit with Acts 6 um, this coming week and think about ways in your church that you can be busy in the work of promoting and protecting church unity, spotting and meeting tangible needs, and serving and supporting the ministry of the Word. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for my friends here. Uh, Lord, you know who they are, where they're at uh, uh, emotionally and spiritually. Lord, I know some of them have come with wind in their sails and are encouraged in their life and ministry. Others are, feel like they have just luggage carts behind them of, of um, burdens and sorrows. And Lord, we, we pray that as they go back into their um, churches tomorrow, that you would give them fresh eyes to see people in their church the way you do. Lord, we pray that you would invigorate them for the work of ministry. Lord, for the deacons here, we, we pray that you would um, help them to see that their labor is not in vain, that they are um, deeply strategic for the life of the church, and that insofar as they serve faithfully, they are reflecting no one less than the very Son of God. And Lord, for pastors in this room, we pray they would be freshly encouraged to go back and to encourage and champion the work of deacons for your glory and the good of your bride. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.